Good evening. Welcome to uh, this week's class of Jewish Insights. We're in the parsha of Teruma. It's actually a very exciting parsha. That's the beginning of another five parshas where um, we will be discussing the building of the Mishkan, the building of the tabernacle that the Jewish people were commanded to build in the desert, which was the forerunner for the Holy Temple, which is... Uh, how you say, that's the, the foundation, that's the focus of Judaism. The holy temple uh, that was in Jerusalem and that one day will be built in Jerusalem when Mashiach will come. May it happen very soon. Um, this year, since it's a leap year, so in fact we're going to be learning about the Mishkan for five straight weeks. You know, sometimes when it's a different type of year, we bunch up some of the parashas, Truman and Tzavik can come together, Vayakal and Pekutik can come together, but this year it's going to be all separated um, so we're going to have five weeks to delve into and to dwell upon the building of the tabernacle. Okay, so um, what was the focus of the tabernacle? What was, if you would have to say, what is the main piece of furniture in the tabernacle? What would you vote for? The Torah. You would say the Torah. We would guess, we would guess the Aron, but uh, possibly the... Uh, the, uh, the menorah. Menorah. So yours is there's two possibilities so far: the Aaron or the menorah, right? The Aaron, which is the ark in which the tablets were placed, right? We all know that the, the tablets were placed in the ark. Um, the two tablets which contain the Ten Commandments, right? The two tablets that God gave to Moses. Possibly even also the top of of the ark where God said He was going to reside. Oh, God! So in other words, God's residing on the ark, right? Um, how about another option? So Ed said maybe the menorah. Here's another option. The altar. So the truth is that there is a, there's a, a, a disagreement, a discussion between Maimonides and Nachmanides. Rabbi Moshe ben Maimon and Rabbi Moshe ben Nachman. Uh, one was known as Rambam and one is known as Ramban. Anyway, two very great sages. And their disagreement is not what is the most important piece of furniture. The question is, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? In other words, what's the main focus of the tabernacle? Maimonides says the main focus of the tabernacle is that there should be a place where Jews can come and offer sacrifices. That's the main function of the temple. If that's the main function of the temple, so what's the most important piece of furniture? The altar, right? Uh, Nachmanides says, no, yes, the altar is important. But the reason why you have to build a holy temple is so that there should be a house in which the ark is. The ark which represents God dwelling with the Jewish people. So that's the purpose of, of, the, of, the, of the holy temple, of the tabernacle, etc. I'm not getting into who's right and who's wrong. That's not the point. The fact of the matter is that the ark, the Orin, is a very, very important, even my Maris will tell you, it's a very important uh, focal point of the Holy Temple. Uh, after all, the, the foundation of, of what Judaism is all about, which is contained in the two tablets, that is in the Aryan, that is in the Ark. All right, so how do we know that the two tablets were put into the Ark? So let's see source number one. It's from this week's Parsha. You shall place into the Ark the testimony which I will give you. All right, if you're making a box, the purpose of the box is so that it should hold something. What are you going to put into it? The testimony. Rashi, the testimony, the Torah, which is the testimony between us 
that I have commanded you the mitzvahs written in it. All right. The Torah, the Ark, the tablets. <laughs> I don't know it's the tablets. Anyway, there are other, there are other uh, indications throughout the Torah that the specific, um, how do you say, Torah that's being placed in here is the tablets. In fact, when they built the, the tabernacle for the first time, there was no Torah scroll. Right? The Torah was not complete yet. So Moses had not yet written the entire Torah. The only Torah that they had, the only embodiment of Torah in a physical something, was in tablets. So the tablets were placed in the Ark. Source number two, the Talmud of Menachas tells us something very fascinating. Rabbi Yosef taught, this teaches us that the tablets and the shards of the shattered tablets were placed in the Ark. There were two tablets. You're right. Two sets of tablets. Thank you. There were two sets of tablets. One set of tablets was given by God to Moses after 40 days after the giving of the Torah. And it comes down from the mountain. And Moses sees the Jewish people serving the golden calf. And he took the tablets and he broke them. Broke them. Now, mind you, these tablets were given to him by God. These weren't just, you know, any tablets he bought in Walmart or something like that, right? So when he broke them, what do you think he did with the broken pieces? He didn't throw them out, heaven forbid, right? So the shards were kept. The broken pieces were kept. Anyway, uh, Moses had uh, a real job in his hand to um, ensure that God does not destroy the Jewish people, that God should uh, forgive the Jewish people that goes back up the mountain, and he begs God to forgive them, and then God says, okay, I'm going to forgive them. However, we have to replace the tablets that you broke. You go back down. Prepare two tablets, bring them back up to the mountain, and I will inscribe, I will engrave the Ten Commandments in the second set of tablets. So it turns out that Moses got two sets of tablets, one that was broken and one that was full. So in the Ark, you had the full set and the broken set. And that wasn't it. It was a big box. There was room for something else. After 40 years in the desert, towards the end of the Torah, the Torah tells us in Deuteronomy when Moses finished writing the words of this Torah in a scroll until their very completion, on the day that Moses died, he wrote the Torah. He actually wrote 13 Torahs. But anyway, when he finished writing the Torah, Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of God, saying, Take this Torah scroll and place it, al- place it alongside the Ark of Covenant of the Lord your God, and it will be there as a witness. Rashi tells us, what does it mean alongside the Ark of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord? It was laid alongside the tablets inside the Ark. Source number four, this is the preface to the Mishnah, not to the Mishnah Torah, I don't think. Anyway, um, Maimonides writes the following, Moses wrote the entire Torah before his passing in his own hand. He gave a copy to each tribe and one copy was placed in the Ark as a testimony. As the verse states, Take this Torah scroll and place it alongside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, and it will be there as a witness. So we've got three things inside the Ark. All three of them are Torah-oriented, right? So you have both sets of tablets, which are their original embodiment, physical embodiment of the Torah. Mm-hmm. And you also have the first Torah scroll ever to be written by Moses. These were all housed in the Ark. Yeah. 
I wonder if also in there would be part of of the breath of God because there was air in there, obviously. Of course, there's air in there. Of course, there was air in there, but it's not called breath of God. Breath of God is the soul, the soul of the person. Okay, so now like this. By the way, just to make things interesting, I'll just let you know. I'll be I'll do a, a spoiler alert. The Talmud actually records a debate between the sages what exactly was inside the Ark. We're going to be learning one opinion, and that's the opinion that Rashi you know, is going according to him, and the Maimonides, Rambam, is going according to him. That's the opinion of Rabbi Meir, that the second set of tablets, the first set, the broken set, and the Sefer Torah, the scroll, was kept in there. I believe according to the second opinion, which is Rabbi Yehuda, only the second set of tablets was in there, uh, the broken tablets were kept in a different box, and the Sefer Torah, the the scroll, was actually they they made like a little shelf outside of the outside of the ark, and they put the Torah on that. Anyway, so it's, it's a discussion in the Talmud, but uh, we're going to go with Rabbi Meir over here because it seems like Rashi uh, goes according to him and the Rambam, etc. Alrighty, so now let's see how exactly this worked. Right? How, how did this? Uh, how did all? There's a lot of things to keep in this box, right? So how did all of these tablets and and the Torah scroll fit in the ark? So for that we have to go to our parasha and see what are the dimensions of the ark. Source number five: They shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its depth. You shall overlay it with pure gold from inside and from outside. You shall overlay it and you shall make upon it a golden crown all around. So it's it's a wooden box which is overlaid with pure gold. How did they do that? They didn't just take the box and plate it with gold. In fact, Betzalel, who was the the master contractor, uh, he wasn't the architect. The architect was God. But the contractor, the one who was in charge of, of making it all happen, so um, what he did was he made three boxes. A golden box, a smaller wooden box from acacia wood, and then a smaller golden box. Mm-hmm. So he put the, the, the medium-sized wooden box into the larger golden box, and he put the, the smaller golden box into the medium-sized wooden box, and now you had the wooden box that was basically surrounded by uh, two golden boxes. There was no space in between the gold and the wood. It was, it was as if it was plated. But really, okay. So two and a half cubits, two and a half cubits, and, a, and one and a half cubit, right? Okay. Oh, two and a half, one and a half, one and a half. I'm sorry, yeah, you're right. Two and a half, one and a half, and one and a half. Very good. How much is a cubit? We'll talk about that soon. I will arrange my meetings with you there, and I will speak with you from atop the ark cover from between the two shrubim, chruvim, uh, that are upon the ark of the testimony, all that I will command you unto the children of Israel. So as Eugene just mentioned earlier, this was the, how do you say, this is like the radio. This is like the divine radio. In other words, God's voice was heard by Moses, and somehow the voice emanated from the top of the ark, and between the two chruvim, the two cherubs, right? These two angelic figures that were on top of the orin, right? So if you look on page three, here we have uh, kind of a, a depiction of the orin. So you see there's this box, and um, and it has these two cherubs on top, and they have their, their wings are kind of touching on the top over there, etc. 
So what he just said was that God's voice emanated from the middle of the top, the middle of the top covering of the Aaron. Alrighty, so now what are these two and a half and one and a half and one and a half? So source six, this takes us to the Talmud and the tractate Bava Batra. It's important to actually notice that it's the tractate of Bava Batra. Uh, we'll see more about that later on in the class. So the ark that Moses made was two and a half cubits in length, one and a half cubits wide, and one and a half cubits in depth. Now a cubit <laughs> could either be five hand breaths or six handbreadths. A handbreadth is this, pretty much. A tefach. This is called a tefach. Um, fine. Tefach. Yeah. It's about three inches, three and a half inches, something know. like that. Something like that. All right. A tefach. This is the tefach. So a cubit could either be five or six. That's just the fact. So the Talmud is telling us when we talk about cubits, in the Aryan, in the Ark, the cubits over here are the six tefach cubits. Mm. So if it's six tefach cubits, the larger cubits. Okay? So if you look at it now, look at the actual dimension that we have here. So if the length is two and a half cubits, and each cubit is six, so six plus six is twelve, and then and a half a cubit is three. So you got fifteen cubits wide. And then it's one and a half cubits, de- uh, how do you say, um, w- wide. This is length. Then there's the width. No, it's width. Depth is from top to bottom. Depth is top to bottom. When it's a, if it's a box that's open on the top, so the way you're going to say it is, it's long, it's wide, deep. Well, if you look on the boxes, you look at the height and the deep. But you're right. Depends. You're right. It's true. Either way works. Either way, as long as you don't get confused about what we're talking about here, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's why we look at the, dom- the dimension, you see the numbers. So it's 15 handbreadths wide and uh, nine handbreadths tall and nine handbreadths, handbreadths uh, sorry, 15 long, nine wide, and nine height. All righty. Then the Talmud tells us we know the exact dimensions of the luchais. Of the of the of the tablets that were given to Moses, the tablets were six handbreadths in length, and six handbreadths in width. They were perfect squares, and three handbreadths deep. And they were placed along the length of the ark. So, they they were they laid flat on the bottom of the ark. So, if, so each tablet is six wide. So six and six together is twelve. Yeah, what's left if it's fifteen f- fifteen handbreadths wide? One and long. Deep on each side. Well, that's right. if you put it in the middle. If you put it, yeah, you, in other words, we have three left to deal with, right? That's the point. We have three left to deal with. Okay. So so notice again, it's important to understand these dimensions. They're six by six, which means really they're they're twelve by by six, right? That's the amount that they are taking up, and it's three tefachim uh, thick. So he continues, the tablets consume 12 handbreadths along the length of the ark, leaving three free. Now, this measurement of 15 handbreadths long, that's from the outside. That's from the outside, but inside, it's obviously going to be losing some of the circumference because the walls have a certain thickness, 
especially we're talking here about three different boxes that were made. So he says like this, subtract one tefach, half a tefach from each side for the walls of the ark. So Rabbi Meir is telling us that each wall was a half a tefach thick, about one and a half inches thick. So a full tefach goes to the actual thickness of the walls. So what's left? Two tefachim. And that leaves us with two hand breaths. So what was left, what was placed in that, in those two hand breaths? The Torah scroll was placed in this space. The Torah scroll that Moses wrote 40 years later, that was placed over there right next to these two tablets. Now, let's continue. Right, you see also the you see the diagram here. He broke the hmm? he bro- the what did you just say about the the extra spaces for the for the scroll? The extra space on the side of the so in other words, when they put uh, the two tablets in, they put it against one of the walls. They didn't put it in the middle. Yeah. They put it against one of the walls. And you have two empty tfachim on the on the floor, right? On the on the on the bottom of the ark, there's two tfachim that are empty. What was placed yeah. there? The scroll. The first Torah scroll that was written by Moses, that was placed right over there. Um, now that we've covered the ark's length, let us look at the width. The tablets consumed six hand breaths, leaving three remaining, because it was it was nine hand breaths wide. Right? So if you lay the luchais, if you lay the, 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 the tablets down. So there's there are six tfachim. So now you have three left, right? The tablets consume six hand breaths, leaving three remaining. And what do we say? That the walls also had a thickness. So subtract one tefach for the walls um, on either side, and that leaves two hand breaths. So what are those two empty the two empty hand breaths there? So he says, allowing the Torah to be placed inside and removed with ease, according to Rabbi Meir. There had to be some space in the ark, because if you want to take out the Torah, you have to be able to put your hand in and pull it out. So that's why that area remained empty. So it wasn't a waste of space. It was a space that was there in order to make it uh, utility, right? Utilizable. Utilizable. That's a real word? Utilizable? Usable. There we go. In order to make it usable. Right? So it's not just about storing stuff in there. Apparently this Torah scroll had to be taken out, put back in, and things like that. Yeah? That's the purpose of a Torah scroll. You have to learn from the Torah scroll. You have to use it. You have to... Anyway. So this is the story of... Oh, and and then what what about the height of the the Arim? Six... So we had another set of tablets that were broken, right? Mm-hmm. But they're the same size as the, as the second set. So you have nine tefachim. The actual floor was a tefach. And then you have three tefachim that were filled up with the second set of tablets. On top of that was three tefachim with a broken set of tablets. And then you had two empty tefachim on the top. Breathing room. Fine? How do we know... The, the, the complete ones were on the bottom and then the broken ones were just the other way around. I don't know. I think from the Talmud, the Talmud says that like the, the, the second set was placed down. It seemed, it would seem from the Talmud that the second set was on the bottom and the broken ones were on top. It could be it was different. I don't know. I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. I, don't, I t- can't uh, answer that. Okay. 
So let's go to... So this is very interesting here. The Talmud is telling us the exact measurement of the tablets. Six by six by three. Handbreadths, right? What shape were they? Square. Six by six by three. Sounds like they were square, no? And in fact, the way you put them into the ark, right? The ark says, it, it says you put them in, and there's two empty handbreadths, right? And there has to be a, a purpose for those handbreadths. And he says, oh, to make it utilizable, to make it usable, right? You should be able to put your hand in. All right, this is what we're going to be talking about. Page six. There is, so this is from a talk that the Rebbe gave, I believe, in 1981. Uh, there is a matter that religious Jews have been making a mistake about for generations already. To the point it has become routine. Ironically, this mistake is made by Jewish institutions that promote Torah without compromises and in the context of emphasizing the uniqueness of the Jewish people. In order to illustrate their guiding values, these institutions include on their letterhead a representation of the tablets. What better way to represent the idea that you stand for Torah values, right? Everyone has to like express themselves with a picture, with an icon. So what's, what better icon for Jewish values than the tablets? In the illustration, the tablets are straight on the bottom, but rounded on the top in the shape of a semicircle. However, this shape is contrary to an explicit passage in the Talmud in Tractate Baba Batra, as well as a number of passages in the Medrash. All right, now the fact that it's in Baba Batra is important here, and important also to why the Rebbe made this a very, very important issue. Tractate Bava Batra is one of the seven tractates studied in all Yeshivot. All right, let me explain this. If you look at the Talmud, the Talmud has 60 tractates. It's, it's, it's pretty big. It's a 63. It's, it's busy. It's a, it's a whole situation going on over there. Some of them are longer. Some of them are shorter. Some of them deal with um, issues that, uh, that will come up more often or less often, right? So, so there's, there's a tractate of Shabbat. There's a tractate that deals with different holidays. There's a tractate that deals with marriage issues. There's a tractate that deals with uh, you know, civil issues, monetary issues, and things like that. There are tractates that deal with sacrifices. For 2,000 years, we haven't dealt with that, right? Anyway, so the point of this is like this. A boy chick goes into yeshiva for approximately seven years. Right? Yeshiva means once he's already about 13 years old, he's already bar mitzvah, he's going to go into the yeshiva system. The approximate amount of years it's expected that the boy is going to be in yeshiva is approximately the seven to eight years, Right? You know, in America, you have four years high school, four years college, right? So it's eight. By the time they finish the seventh year, you know, approximately seven, eight years after going to the yeshiva system, that's when they start to work for their rabbinic ordination, and then they graduate, and they get married, and then obviously they continue to learn. But everyone is going to be in yeshiva. Most of the Orthodox children, they're in the yeshiva system. Those teenagers are there for about seven years. Every year, they learn a different tractate from the Talmud. Um, not every yeshiva system necessarily learns the same tractate for that year. It's not as, you know, for example, in the Chabad system, all the yeshivas learn the exact same tractate that year, which is a very positive thing. So now youngsters and you know, teenagers and older teenagers from all different ages are able to engage in Talmud study together because they're learning the same topic, they're learning the same tractate, right? Obviously on different levels, right? The, thir- the 14-year-olds are learning it uh, more basic and the 20-year-olds are going, you know, into the deep end. But they're learning the same tractate. Um, other you know, communities, other yeshiva systems, they have a different cycle than the Chabad one, but they pretty much cover the same tractates. 
Okay? Um, Bava Batra is learned in every yeshiva system. Every guy that goes into the yeshiva system is going to learn Bava Batra at a certain point in his life. Whether when he's 14, whether when he's 20, it doesn't matter. It's going to happen. He's going to bump into Bava Batra. And usually you start from the beginning. This discussion about the, about the tablets is in page 14. Everyone's getting there. No matter how in-depth you're learning, no matter how much you're going to kratz, you know, the kratzing, the, the, no matter how much you take your time, you're going to reach page 14. You might not reach page 168. You might not get all the way to the end, but, uh, or 176, actually. I think there's 176 <coughs> pages in that. Uh, it's the longest tractate in, um, in, in the Talmud. So, but you're going to get to page 14, huh? Page 14, you should get You should get there. You'll get to 14, right? So, <clears throat> so let's continue here. Tractate of the Batra is one of the seven tractates studied in all yeshivot. The Talmud states there that the tablets were six by six hand breaths. The clear implication is that they were square with straight angles. Moreover, the Talmud states that the tablet consumed in the ark uh, okay, we, we didn't we didn't like make a big deal out of that uh, here. If you look on the top of page four, the tablets consumed twelve handbreadths along the length of the ark, leaving three free. Why is he use the term oichlois? It consumed, it ate it up. What does that mean? Right? So the use consume. How come it says they're leaving three? No, it, it it consumed twelve. Those twelve were fully, fully consumed by it. That's the whole point here, right? Uh, the use of the word, I'm going back to page 6 on the bottom, the use of the word consumed seems strange. Are the tablets consuming the ark? What are they eating? What's going on over here? So he says, no, that's that's the whole point. What, it, what this means, we're on page 7, what this means is that the tablets, which were six by six handbreadths, filled the entire space of the ark in which they were placed without leaving any void. But if they were rounded on top, then there would be some void. They wouldn't be consuming that space. This is why the Talmud uses the word consumed, because the tablets consumed all of the space. This means that the tablets were square. It's just a historical fact. They were square. In addition, there is no source anywhere in the teachings of the sages that implies that the tablets had rounded tops. Now, granted, the Talmud doesn't say they were square. The Talmud doesn't say the words square. The Talmud just gives the dimensions, six by six, and the Talmud says that when it was placed in the ark, it consumed 12 handbreadths. Consumed is a, is a strange word to use. So it's communicating something. And by the way, you don't have to only depend on trying to find some way of reading the Talmud. There was a great sage who lived hundreds of years ago. His name was Rabbeinu Bachya. Source number seven, Rabbeinu Bachaya. There's actually people either say Bachya or Bachaya. Know that the tablets were square. He says clearly they were square. Six handbreadths in length and six in width, as the sages explained in the Talmud, the tablets were six in length and six in width and three deep. Boom. Yeah, three deep. No, no, I'm, I'm saying technically it wouldn't be square. It would it would be a slightly cube because of because it's three. Yeah. No, they were they weren't they weren't square yeah. totally, but yeah. uh, the shape yeah. it's shaped square, right? right? On the, surface. the shape is square. On the surface, the it's square. square. Okay. So then you can ask the question, hold on. <laughs> so how did they become round? How do we start depicting them round? Bottom of page 7, there's a simple explanation for how Jews came to draw the tablets with round tops. Due to anti-Jewish regulations, Jewish books were handled by non-Jewish printers. 
And they were also subject to censorship by the non-Jewish authorities. I, I was just actually um, reading, I, I was hearing something about, about uh, the, the first print shops. It was at the, at the end of the 1400s, right? Like 1490-something. That's when the print shops opened up in Italy or maybe the 1480s. Um, that was one type of printing and then like evolved and you know in the early 1500s it was a better type of printing um, Jews were not allowed to own print shops this was like cutting edge technology and in Italy Jews were not allowed to have print shops so it was, it was non-Jews who owned the print shops but it was a capitalist thing right so if you have a print shop what type of books do you want to print books that people will buy now, who is the people of the book the Jews right the Jews have got a lot of books, a lot of books that a lot of Jews want. And in fact, the first editions of the Talmud were published in non-Jewish print shops by non-Jews. There was a famous one, Sonsino, Bromberg. These were non-Jews who wanted to make a buck. They wanted to make business. And so they printed the Talmud, they printed the Chumash, they printed the, the five books of Moses, but it was called Mikroiz Gedolis, which means they brought all of the different, um, uh, how do you say, um, commentaries on the not all, but they, they got some of the major commentaries on the Torah, like Rashi, obviously, and then you have Ramban, Nachmanides, and you have others, and they, they created this this type of book, which you know Jews were picking them up like hot potatoes. I mean, they, they, this is what they wanted, right? But here's the problem: who's printing this stuff? It's a non-Jew that's printing it. So with actual content, uh, there was also problems, by the way. You know, they, they published the Talmud, but the Talmud was also censored by the church. So there was a lot of things that were taken out or changed or things like that. So you had to have some real scholars that knew how to, you know, identify what was taken out and what happened over there, etc. But besides that, if you have only non-Jews, mostly non-Jews working in the print shop, so even if they know how to read Hebrew and they know how to copy from a manuscript, they're going to make mistakes because they don't understand what's being, what's written over there. There's a whole story how they were able to, to arrange that there was one Talmudic scholar, um, who, who was hired, and he was one of the main, um, how you say, correctors, uh, editors, Edit, editors the of the first, the proofreaders, exactly, of the Talmud. Um, that's a whole, it's all history for itself. The point, the fact of the matter is that in the early century of printing Jewish books, these books were printed by non-Jews. So let's continue. The non-Jewish printers and the censors would draw an image of the tablets on the title page or at the beginning of the book, and they would do so in the form they were accustomed to with round tops. In other words, they, the title page, right? You don't have to have a scholar to, to do a title page. And these printers, the title page is usually you know, with a lot of illustration and with art, etc. And so they're doing a Jewish book. They want to do Jewish symbols, Jewish icons. And what is a perfect Jewish symbol to put on a Jewish book? The two tablets. And in the Christian mind, the tablets were rounded on top. Why? Whatever. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, the Jewish audience that purchased the books didn't care much for the title page and introductory material. They were focused on studying the contents of the book. As a result, they paid no attention to the fact that the tablets were represented with round rather than flat tops. As the generations passed, this shape became standard in Jewish books. But it turns out that the original source for rounded tablets is from the non-Jews. This is why I advocated behind the scenes that a certain institution should change the way the tablets are represented on their letterhead so they should not have rounded tops. At least the next time they print a new batch of letterheads, the image should be with flat top tablets as the Talmud teaches. So they're ever saying this in 1981. Yeah. 
He says that behind the scenes, I kind of arranged. It turns out that the Rebbe actually had these conversations with several institutions, uh, you know, convincing them to actually do a square the way it is said in the Talmud and not round the way it's been traditionally done, you know, for whatever reason for the past, you know, several centuries. And it wasn't just that. Just recently I heard um, a story. I'm not going to get into all the details, but there was this huge institution that was built in Jerusalem called Heichal Shlomo. And um, yeah, it's a huge synagogue, and they also have a, a rabbinic court that's involved over there. So it's, it's a very, very big institution. And uh, the fellow that was in charge of funneling the money, all the, the one who was in charge of the project, had a relationship with the Rebbe. He came to the Rebbe several times, etc. And the Rebbe specifically asked him, I understand that in the, in the planning of the building, on the very top of this huge building, there's going to be the two tablets, a depiction of the two tablets. The Rebbe specifically asked him to make sure that those tablets are square and not rounded on top. And he, he listened. And he, you know, he, so on top of the huge institution in Jerusalem, it's square luchis, square um, tablets, specifically because the Rebbe, uh, you know, the Rebbe advocated for that. The Rebbe was very big into this. So um, source number eight, this is, a, uh, this is from um, a letter that the Rebbe wrote to um, an institution. Uh, it was in fact a political party. There's also a political party in, uh, yeah, political party. It was like an activist uh, organization in Israel. Um, so it's in the Rebbe's Igris Kedush and the Rebbe's uh, collection of letters. This is from the mid-60s. I would like to take this opportunity to raise with you that I have noticed on some of the publications of your party, right, it was a political party, I noticed tablets with rounded tops. This shape is rooted in non-Jewish culture and contradicts the words of our sages that they were six in length and width and three in depth. In our publications, especially those for children, we are precise in this regard. I was telling him, if you look at the Chabad publications for children, we're very specific about this. If you look on page 9, there is a picture, a copy of it, but let me show you something here. Um, all right. So, in 1941, in 1941, the Rebbe uh, escaped the Nazis and he came to the United States. And as soon as he arrived, his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe, established uh, the Chabad outreach uh, organization called Merkez Lenyone Chinuch, and it was also a publishing house. And the Rebbe uh, and the previous Rebbe um, appointed the Rebbe to be in charge of the publishing house and in charge of the outreach, etc. And one of the very first things that the Rebbe launched was a monthly publication called Talks and Tales. So this is a book; it's a collection of it. But I'll just show you, every, every month, it was like four or five page uh, publication, maybe even longer, for children. And it was about the month. It was called Talks and Tales. Now notice the artwork over here in the front. So the artwork on the top, well, depending how you're looking at it, but if you look at it, it at the top right, there's the luchais, there's the, the, what's it called? The tablets. And they're in the clouds, and they're facing the globe. The globe has three pillars holding it up. There's actually a very fascinating letter where the Rebbe describes, describes to so, someone basically looked at this picture, and he had problems with the picture, um, with, with the way the globe was. It was a whole, it had to do with science. It was a very interesting uh, question that he had from the Rebbe. And the Rebbe basically describes to him that every element of the picture, Every element of this artwork, um, the, the 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 fact that the the fact that the tablets are a little bit slanted, everything about it 
is exact and there's meaning to it and there's something behind it. I'll have to find it. I'll send it to you. <laughs> it's a very, very fascinating uh, letter. It, it looks in the, in the globe that it's facing Jerusalem. Right. <laughs> so it's facing Sinai. That ever says like it's facing Sinai. Right. It's a whole, yeah, there's a whole thing. Anyway, so, um, so that points out, he says, on our publication for the children, we make it specifically square. This is in the early 40s. Uh, incidentally, so this talks and tales, right away in the beginning, it came out in two languages, Yiddish and English. The English was not a translation from the Yiddish. It was two distinct publications. Um, children were reading Yiddish in those days. And uh, this publication continued to, to come out until the late 80s. I think 1988 was the last year that it came out. Um, so the one who was in charge of the publication, the one who actually you know put the materials together, etc., his name was Rabbi Dr. Nissen Mendel. He, he later on worked for the Rebbe's, the Rebbe's secretariat. Uh, he, wrote, he wrote the Rebbe's English letters. He was, he was in charge of you know typing them up, etc. But... Um, uh, so when he was appointed to put together these talks and tales, the previous Rebbe said like this, the Rebbe should edit the English publication, and Rabbi Chodakov, who was one of the previous Rebbe's secretaries and later on became the Rebbe's main secretary, you know, like his chief of staff, so to speak, um, that he should edit the Yiddish. The Rebbe was involved in this publication through the 80s. You know what this means? The Rebbe... The big Rebbe who was running the world. You know what I'm saying? He was running the Jewish world. He was sending out rabbis and he was, he was all these things, right? And, and yet, he, every month, he's editing the English publication that's going out to children. And everything was very specific and everything was... was... Anyway, so the point is the Rebbe is referencing to the, the title page the cover page of this monthly publication for children, he says, we're very specific about it being square tablets and not rounded ones. Now, you could ask a simple question. What's the big deal? What's the big deal? Round, square. Oh, so that explains. Page nine. The role of a proper Jewish school is to protect the children from outside influences and teach the children all of your actions should be for the sake of heaven and know God in all your ways. Right? So you're trying to give them Judaism without compromise. And you're trying to teach them that what is the truth? Torah, nothing else. Nothing else should influence your life. Yet, when they illustrate the tablets, which include the entire Torah, on official school stationery, they do so contrary to the Talmud. Right? Part of your icon, part of the, part of the image that the child is seeing on a constant basis is something that's completely the opposite. Forget about that, it's goyish. It's opposite of what the Talmud says. As we have established, according to the Talmud, the tablets must have been square, not with round tops. This is clearly stated in Tractate Baba Batra, a tractate studied in all yeshivot. Now he said, the Rebbe says, I'm not the only one saying this. There is a rabbi in Beresheva, not a follower of Chabad, who recently published a book in which he demonstrates that based on the Talmud, the tablets must have been square without round tops. This author concludes by expressing his bewilderment with the common practice of drawing the tablets with round tops rather than following the specifications of the Talmud. Yeah, so here we bring a quote from Be'er Eliyahu, which is from Rabbi Eliyahu Katz. I must note that this practice is foreign to the Jewish tradition. The Christian and non-Jewish artists are the ones that depicted the tablets with round tops. This shape is not only not ideal, it is best to avoid drawing it that way. So, by the way, uh, if, you, if you look at the, the, 
the image of Michelangelo of Moses, right? The the, the tumbler, yeah, the Sistine no, no. Chapel. Somewhere, it's one of these things yeah. where, they, where they have uh, Moses with horns, right? That's, mm -hmm. that's where the, the Jews got their horns from, right? From Michelangelo's, um, uh, no, it's not a drawing. It's a statue, statue like a, yeah. So, um, sculpture. a sculpture, there you go. So the, his sculpture of Moses, so he has, you know, he has Moses with the horns. And he has Moses with his right hand on the tablets. I don't know if you ever noticed it, but if you look, look it up, look it up. You don't have to. You don't have to look at the image, whatever. Well, they're fifty years ago, so I don't. Know. Oh yeah, the tablets over there are square. They're flat on the top. They're not rounded. Rembrandt, in his depiction of Moses on top of Mount Sinai, it's rounded. <laughs> anyway, the the point is where these round tablets came from. It, it, in other words, so for example, there's a theory out there. There's a theory out there that um, in Tunisia. They would make they would make a depiction of the tablets, but the tablets had like three like crowns on top of them to represent the crown of the Torah. And so people saw it and they saw three crowns, and so they made it round. You know what I'm saying? Whatever. There, there's different theories out there of how it became round, but there is no Torah source to indicate at all that the tablets that Moses got. Oh, the other theory is <laughs> that uh, I, don't, I don't know how many years ago, let's say 800, 900 years ago, people were using tablets. Right for writing, inscribing, etc. And those tablets were round on top. In general, the tablets that people used were round on top. So when people say, oh, and Moses got two tablets with the Ten Commandments, so they, they in instinctively, they, they drew two rounded tablets. It's like today you tell a kid, Mo God gave Moses two tablets. What's he going to think? Two Apple tablets, right? And that's what God gave, God gave to Moses. These are all like silly ways of how the rounded tablets came to, into use, right? Now, th there are those that want to, uh, you say, they want to defend the idea and say that, no, in other words, the reason why the people made it with round on top is in order that it shouldn't be an exact depiction of the tablets because there is, uh, you know, in the Torah it says that certain things that uh, were used in the Holy Temple, you shouldn't make an exact depiction of it. And the rabbi rejects this, and the rabbi Rabbi Leo Katz rejects this idea. Is like, first of all, there's no, there's no. Uh, I say, the Torah doesn't say that you shouldn't make the tablets. There's no, the tablets weren't used for anything really. So anyway, the the, the round tablets is it's actually a mystery how exactly it came to be. And there are theories out there. And the rabbi himself says that most probably the way it happened was that the earliest printed Jewish books were printed by non-Jews, and on their title pages. They made the rounded tablets either because of Rembrandt or whatever, or because they thought tablets. Okay, tablets are round, so they put it there. No, well, the Rembrandt in the uh, in the sculpture definitely straight, square. No, Rembrandt is round. No. Yeah, I just looked it up. You could see that Moses has his arm so, on it. Right, that's Michelangelo. That's the Michelangelo one. That's the yeah. So the Michelangelo, it's it's not round. It's square. But uh, here, I'll show you a picture. Someone sent it to me here. Um, I don't know if you could see it. You see that oh, yeah. picture? But, so that's from that's, Rembrandt. That's, yeah, but that's a little different too. It's not. Uh, it's rounded on top. He rounds them. Yeah, but but straight rounded. It's not the two things. No, because like, it's uh, two. No, because it's it's two separate tablets. He has basically you're looking at one tablet. There's another one behind uh, it. That, that's how he has it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I'm saying Rembrandt himself wasn't either there. 
You see? Ah, it's yeah, two tablets, yeah. one in front of the other. Ah, yeah. But that's, that's how he has it in this one. And around on top, of course, no. Um, look, as long as he got the, as long as he got the Hebrew letters right. Uh, it seems like he got the Hebrew letters right. In fact, he has the one that speaks about don't kill, don't steal in front. Uh, <laughs> that's the one in front. I guess in his mind, that's the one that Moses wanted to show everybody. Even though there was never a situation of... Anyway, maybe he was about to break them. Maybe this is a depiction of him breaking them. All right. Anyway, be it as it may. Um, so now let's go on page 10. Then I will continue. The argument made in defense of keeping the round-top tablets is that changing them would appear to be a negative statement about our predecessors who presided over institutions that used this representation for many years. <laughs> okay, <laughs> why should we go and say, oh, there was a great rabbi who presided over the institution and there was rounded tablets on the stationery. Uh, let, let, let's not, you know, let's protect their, their uh, dignity. Everyone says, no, 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 this is a, this is a big mistake. And I was here, this is the main point. I think that this is the main point we have to walk away with. This argument has no weight when discussing a matter of educational importance. What's the issue here? Children receive certificates from their schools on which the tablets are illustrated with round tops. This leads them to believe that this was indeed the shape of the tablets. A kid in first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, they see pictures, right? That's what they see. And they see these rounded tablets and they see, oh, these are the luchas. These are the tablets that Moses received. Fine. So in their mind, in their mind, from their school, they received an image of what the tablets looked like that they were rounded on top. Later, the child will study the Talmudic passage quoted earlier. And it's, it's inevitable that he will study it because he's going to go to yeshiva. They're going to learn Tractate Baba Basra. They're going to get to page 14, Right? Yeah. They're going to get there. And he will discover that the impression he had as a result of studying at his school is contrary to the Talmud. He's going to learn the Talmud. He's a smart boy. He's going to read six hand breaths by six hand breaths. This is square, not round. As a result, the child loses faith in his teachers and questions even the correct things they taught him. Trust is the most important thing in education. And it is the most, how do you say, the, the most brittle thing in education. It's the one thing that you have to nurture, protect, and salvage as much as you can. Because once that trust breaks, it's either impossible or very, very difficult to rebuild. Right? Yeah. And it, it's not malicious. It's not a malicious issue over here. It, you can't blame anyone for having the round tablets, right? That's what my grandparents had on their stationery. They're always basically saying, we have to realize mm -hmm. that we have to change this. It's a huge problem. Because the kid will study Talmud and he'll see that everyone in the school is representing the tablets contrary to the Talmud. The school is trying to teach me that I should live my life according to the Talmud. I shouldn't have any other outside influences. And here the school is, is giving over the images of the tablets as the way they are represented by Rembrandt, by the Christians, and contrary to the way it says it in the Talmud. Um, this issue, here let's go to page 11. Uh, this issue must therefore be corrected. It shouldn't be dismissed as insignificant. Firstly, even minor issues shouldn't be dismissed. And in our case, we are discussing the tablets, which are the basis of the entire Torah. Fine. Um, there is also an additional concern here. The source of the round-top representation of the tablets is non-Jewish, and contrary to the Talmud. When one uses the round-top representation, they are effectively preferring the non-Jewish version over the Jewish version. This matter should be rectified from now on. 
It doesn't require much effort because letterheads are anyway reprinted from time to time. And just like the name of the president of the institution can be changed, <laughs> they didn't translate this. There was a, and sometimes they forget about the previous president, and if they're nice to the guy, we'll give him some type of you know emeritus uh, you know thing. So too can the shape of the tablets, so that instead of round tops, the tablets will be square. <clears throat> what what what? Um, I don't I don't want to use the word impressed, but what, what what takes me about this this message from the Rebbe? It's not it's not that we're being a stickler for detail. No no no. It's about education. The tablets are not some obscure, you know, thing that no one ever sees. No, no, no. These are used as an icon for what Torah education is all about. It's for an icon for the foundations of Torah. So if the Talmud never said anything of how they looked, so use your imagination, no one cares. But here the Talmud is saying clearly, six by six by three. Granted, the Talmud doesn't say the word square, right? But the Talmud gives all of the indications of square. And Rabbeinu Bechayi says, it was square. It wasn't round. And there is zero indication in any Torah source that they were rounded. That's also a problem here. There is no indication that it was rounded. It's all about imagery, right? And we could track down where these rounded uh, tablets came from, right? They came from non-Jewish sources. In fact, someone told me, um, Henry III, in 1218, he, um, he, he made a, an edict that all the Jews in his kingdom have to wear two uh, like shma- white uh, pieces of cloth with a rounded top, depicting the, the, the tablets. That was the original yellow, yellow star, right? The, the point is, the rounded tablets have no source in Torah, other than the fact that many Torah books have round tablets in the front. <laughs> who printed these books? It wasn't Jewish people. It didn't come from a Jewish source, right? And the, the fact that it's rounded tops, I mean, it, it comes from, from non-Jewish paintings and things like that. So if we, if, we are, if we are educating children and we're showing them these images, it is extremely important that those images should be in accordance to what the Talmud states very clearly. And all of the all of the arguments and say, look, in previous generations they did it and they were holy people. It's, it's all good and fine. It's fine. And we're not blaming anyone. But if we have an opportunity to correct a very big problem, um, today the Jews are printing the books. So why do you have to keep the images from, from then? Right? We're the ones printing the books. We're the ones educating our children. We're the ones that have the letterheads. We're in, con- in control of what we feed our children, of the information and the images that we show them. We should show them something that's in accordance to what the Talmud tells us. They went to Sunday school. They didn't go to the yeshiva. I'm sorry, what? The one that printed is the one that went to Sunday school. They didn't go to yeshiva. Nowadays, the printers are guys that went to yeshiva. They, they know what they're doing. They, they, they know what's happening. Actually, reminds me, I was uh, giving once a class. I told them the story about the second set of tablets. Anyways, so there was a, a person that was there, a Jewish lady. Who would have known that there were two sets of tablets? Who would have known? Who would have known? Yeah, it's, no, it's, it's there in the Torah. Who would have known? There's no excuse. There's no, there, <laughs> that was basically saying, all the guys that are printing it, they also read the, the Talmud above the Basra. Guys, it was square, depicted as square, <laughs> as such. And uh, the main thing is, I'm gonna come, I, I, the main message I'm taking from this is that when it comes to education, it is crucial uh, to be honest, to be clear, and, um, and, and to ensure that the trust remains strong. 
Alrighty, thank, thank you all for joining. If what? You, if there is a mistake, you have to correct. If you make you a mistake, ask, oh, you have to correct. Keep the mistake because... Exactly, exactly. Alrighty, good evening, everybody. Koach.